You are listening to the Passion City Church DC podcast. To learn more about Passion City Church, including our gathering times in Atlanta and Washington, DC, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com. Today's talk comes from Pastor Ben Stewart. Well, not long after we got married, Donna and I got to spend a week in Hawaii. Uh, Six days, seven nights on the Garden Island of Kauai, which I highly recommend. And if you've never been, Kauai is like the least developed of the islands. So a lot of it is just so lush and so green. uh, It's become the backdrop of a lot of cool island movies, like all the Jurassic Parks were filmed there. King Kong was filmed there. Uh, It was Neverland in Hook. Uh, Blue Hawaii with Elvis Presley. All these different movies were shot in this beautiful little island. And if you're into hiking or uh, surfing, you'd want to go to the north side of the island. There's a little town up there called Hanalee. And I remember for Donna and I, we just took a day trip up there. We were in the car and we were kind of snaking along the coastline, making our way up there. And as we did, it just kept coming to my mind. I'm like, Hanalee, Hanalee. Like, why does that sound familiar? And then I remember it dawned on me. Puff the Magic Dragon <laughs> lived by the sea, and he frolicked in the autumn mist in a land called Hanalee. I don't know if many of you know or have ever heard of Puff the Dragon. I didn't take a poll today. I'd be fascinated who has. Yeah, okay, I see you, yeah. Uh, a lot of controversy around Puff, right? Uh, is this just a children's character, a poem about the loss of innocence, or is this a veiled conversation about marijuana? Hard to say. A lot of people were like, his name's Puff. His little buddy's name was Tommy Papers. Uh, They lived at 420 Spliff Street. There's just a lot of like, wait a minute, kind of stuff. But, uh, you know, the writers said, no, it's not about it. It's really about a childhood dragon. But a lot of the controversy started because Hanalee, this town in the 60s, was a hippie commune led by Elizabeth Taylor's brother. They all moved there and made shell necklaces together and started a little commune, which if you don't know what a commune is, the basic idea is I bring all of me and you bring all that you have and we exchange in a way that delights us both. That's what a commune is. I bring all I got and you bring all you got, and we exchange in a way that delights us both. And some of you hear that and you go, well, I don't know about a commune, but that sounds like my dorm in college. Or like your house now. I've seen how some of you live, like six people stacked into a house, and you're like, oh yeah, we all had our defined boundaries when we first moved in. This is my closet, these are my clothes, this is my shelf in the fridge, I'll put my name on my milk. But what happens? About three months in, your clothes are all dirty, you look at your roommates and go, what is this my shirt business? You know what I mean? Like who has the right to own this anyway? All right, or you're out of milk and you pour your cereal and you're like, what is this your milk and my milk? We're a family. And as you hang out with people and live with them, what happens? You've seen it. You start dressing alike. You start talking alike, making the same movie references. You smell alike. The lines between you blur, right? Because I'm bringing me and you're bringing you, right? Now, This is not advocating uh, living in a commune. They tend to break down because of human selfishness. And I'm certainly not advocating uh, the political view of communism. But you go, why are you bringing all this up? Because I think a natural question, and if I can be honest, I think the question that brought most of us here is how do we commune with God? How do I bring all of me 
not just the pretty parts, but all of me? And how do I let God bring the full way to him? And we exchange in a way that truly satisfies me and delights him. That's what I want. I think that's what we all want. We want something real here that I'm bringing me and you come and you be all of you. And maybe in that beautiful collision, you get delighted and so do I. And what's crazy is John, who walked with Jesus, said this in 1 John chapter 1. He says, that which we have seen and we have heard, we proclaim to you. He said, I'm not making up a story. He said, what I saw, what I heard, the God I touched, Jesus who I leaned back on his chest. He says, that's what I'm proclaiming to you. It's not a made up story. And then he tells you why. He says, so that you too may have fellowship or communion. It's the same word with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. John says, I want you to commune with us. And here's why. Because our communion is with God. It's the Greek word koinonia. We have all things in common. Common is where we get the word coin. It's what we share among us. He says, we have a koinonia, a commonality, a commune, an exchange with God, the living God. And we want you to know what that's like. And for many of us, that's our longing too. How do I get there where I'm not playing a religious game, but I really know God and he really knows all of me. And the beautiful thing is, I think to start that is we have to let God come as he is, not as who we would pretend or make him up to be. I don't think any of us really want to say, well, I want a spiritual side and I just sort of make up a God who happens to, at the end of the day, believe everything I believe and look just like me. That's not really what we need. That's called an imaginary friend. But you really want to be changed. We need to let God come as he is. So I remember for me, when I first started in ministry, I used to go to this pastor prayer meeting in our city. And every time I went, I was reintroduced to this one particular guy. And I say reintroduced because I remembered him, but he never remembered me like every single time. And so someone would say, hey, do you know Ben? And he would go, yeah. And then to show it, he would tell a story about us. The problem is I did not recognize these stories. And so he would be like, oh yeah. He said, man, we shared the gospel once in this bar. This guy is a powerful evangelist. And I was like, I have never been to a bar with you. Like I haven't. And then the next time we were there, he was like, oh yeah, we played golf together. He's got a mean swing. And I'm like, I've never played golf. Not just not with you. I've never in my life played the game of golf. So I don't know who this golf playing bar evangelist is that you have a relationship, but it's not me. And I never called him on it. Like, why are you lying to me? You know, I never called him out. I just kind of was like, hey, right? But... But to be honest, we didn't have a deep relationship. Nothing transformative happened in either of our lives from this connection, right? Because at the end of the day, he didn't know me. And I don't want us to play a game where we're like, God, oh yeah, and we just kind of fill in the blanks and make it up. I don't think any of us need to play that game. I think we all want a real relationship with the real God who really is. That's why we're here, the hopes that that might be possible. And so to do that, we need to let him come as he is. And the God who is, here's what's crazy, is a community. Do you know that? That God in himself is community. We have a word for it that he is trinity. Tri-unity. That God is three and one. He is one essence, but three personalities. 
One common set of attributes and yet three distinct persons. One what, but three who's is how we would say it. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. We have one God, but that God is also three. Now that sounds complicated. How can that be? And we would expect God to be that way. There's not really anything to compare him to. There's not a lot of other trinities running around, right? But if you would expect a being to be complex, you would think the maker of heaven and earth might be it. And so Justin Martyr, some believe in AD 150, others attributed to Tertullian, coined this term Trinity. It's not in your scriptures, but it helps describe to us what really is here. As we watch God relate to himself and relate to us, you start to see there is one God, and yet this one God is one in one way, one common set of attributes, and three in another way, three distinct persons. And you start to see it kind of shrouded in the Old Testament. Now, this is where we're going to be a theology class for a minute. Buckle up, everybody, all right? Put your thinking caps on. We're going to make it class. But you see it kind of shrouded in the Old Testament. In places like the word one, like the great Shema in Deuteronomy 6.4, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And yet it's interesting, in the language of Hebrew, the Old Testament is written in, there's two different words that we translate as one. One is the word yadid, which means singularity, like it's used of one and only son. But then there's another Hebrew word, echad, which means composite unity. It was used of a single cluster of grapes, or two sticks being bound together and becoming one, or a man and a woman coming together and the two becoming one. It's a composite unity, right? That is the Hebrew word always used of God. The Lord our God, the Lord is echad, a composite unity. You also see it in the divine pronouns, that from the very beginning, God starts doing that. In Genesis 1, God says, let us make man in our own image. And God created man in his own image. And you go, wait, which is it? Is God an us or is God a him? And the answer is yes. He did it to Isaiah. So then I heard a voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? So is he an I or is he an us? Yes, it's bad grammar, but it's good theology that we have one God in one way, but he is three in another way. One God and three persons. You see it in his very name, the plurality in his name. The word we translate God in the Old Testament is the word Elohim. When you want to make a word plural at the end, you add the im at the end, right? So one seraph is one angel, bunch of angels, seraphim. One cherub, cherubim. One El, one God, Elohim, multiple gods. And yet in Hebrew, they, they have articles that you can put at the front, kind of like Spanish, where they kind of are singular, plural, based on the word. So like in Spanish, if I wanted to say the table, I'd say la mesa. If I wanted to say multiple tables, I'd say las mesas. What I wouldn't say is la mesas. You'd say, no, that's wrong. You used a singular to describe plural. But when God is spoken of in the Old Testament, it's always done that way. La Elohim. There's a plurality, but he's one. And you read that and you're like, what does that mean? And the Bible's like, right, just hang on. Because B.B. Warfield said it this way, the Old Testament is like a dark but fully furnished room. All the furniture's there, but you don't fully see it. The New Testament is the flipping on of the lights. That suddenly it's clear to us what Paul said to the Ephesians, that it is in him that is Jesus. We have access by one spirit to the Father, that the Son of God 
has come to give us access to the Father God through God the Spirit, that there is three and that's also one. Or Jesus said it in John 15, when the helper comes, whom I will send from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. So when Jesus is talking about what he wants for us, he's like, I am gonna send you the spirit that actually comes from the Father. And he'll come from the Father to you to tell you about me. So at the end of the day, I want you to know the Father through me and the Spirit's gonna help that happen. So the Spirit who comes from the Father magnifies the Son who sends that Spirit through the Father. Everybody clear on that? And they're like, I think. And he's like, just buckle up because it's coming for you. Because I want you to commune with God. I want you to know, as Paul said, the grace of the Son, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. I want you to commune with God as he is. And the God who is, is three. Let me just say this too. This is good news for us. Because you can't have a God who is love without a trinity. A monad can't love until it creates something else. Love is affection for the other. And so you can't intrinsically be love, but God can be love. Like John said, God is love. Why? Because Father, Son, and Spirit were loving one another for all of eternity, right? God in himself is a party fully enjoying himself. And the beauty of what John told us was, and this God is inviting us into a party that has eternally already been in progress, right? That's the joy of the gospel. You're invited in. So I remember when I first started in ministry, I've told this story. I was uh, single and moved to a city where I didn't know anybody. And so I would uh, often on Friday nights just wander a target alone, Desperately, desperately alone. But I remember once after church, this couple invited me over for lunch and I went to their house and I knocked on the door and they didn't answer. And I kept knocking and I could hear them talking inside. And I was like, well, that's a little cold-blooded. Like invite me over and what are you laughing in there? Like you're all like, hey, 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 look, he's crying. Like what kind of sick joke is this? My life's not sad enough. Did you not see me at Walmart? And so it was pretty stressful. But then as I was knocking, the door kind of cracked and I could see into the kitchen and they saw me. And they didn't stop everything and make Ben the center of attention. Let's all go to the front door now. Welcome to our home. Come through the lanai. Let's have a seat and talk about your life. They didn't do that. They just went, get in there. And I showed up and within seconds, one of them was like, do you want mashed potatoes? Do you want green beans with that? And they're fixing me a plate. Someone else handed me a baby. Suddenly I was in an argument between two of them trying to settle. I'm like, I don't even have any emotional response to these arguments. And on and on we went. I was suddenly in the middle of this family. And Hours later, when I left, my soul felt nourished. And what was crazy about that is I was never the center of attention. I was just invited into love already taking place. And that's the beauty John says. John's like, I, I'm, the reason I'm saying this to you and the reason Passion City Church exists, the reason why I'm talking, doing my third sermon here today, the reason why we're doing this is because I want you to have communion with us and our communion is with the Father and with the Son and with the Spirit. And so Paul's prayer is mine for us. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Spirit be with you all, right? Because to be godly, is to rightly relate with God the Father. To be a Christian is to rightly relate to Jesus Christ. And to be spiritual is to rightly relate to the Spirit. So how are you doing with that? When you think about God, what do you think about? When you think about Father, Son, and Spirit, what do you think about? And when you think about your communion with Him, 
how we exchange, what do you think about? Well, that's where this series is going. It's really two questions. When I think about this member of the Trinity, what do I think about? And when I think about my communion with them, what do I think about? And those are really two different questions. One's a question of role and one's of relationship. One's of constitution, the other's of communion. And these are different. Example would be, I remember I had a guy when I was dating Donna, I would always come visit her at her church. And there was a guy there, Mike, that if you were to ask me, what do you think of when you think of Mike? I would say word association, uh, huge, massive, muscular, terrifying, former social forces, could crush you, intimidating, words like that. Mike was the guy that when he first came to Christ, they put him on the greeter team kind of out front and some guy was being disrespectful and he grabbed the guy and threw him through a plate glass window. And they were just like, whoa, 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 no, you just tell him to please stop. You don't actually <laughs> throw a human being through a window, Mike. Sanctification's a process, we're working with him. When I think of Mike, I think power. When I think of my communion with Mike, I think of love. Because whenever I showed up, he would make a beeline for me and want to sit down and ask me everything going on in my life, everything about what was going on with Donna and I. He just wanted to know. And then he would put his arm around me. And by that, I, I mean, he would basically like circumscribe me. Did I mention he was massive? He would just sort of like envelop me and pray over me. And he would cry when he did. And so I knew Mike loved me. So when I think of Mike, I think power. When I think of my communion with Mike, I think of love. Do you see the difference? So this is what we're going to do. And we're going to take them one at a time. So today we'll start with the son. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. When you think of Jesus, what do you think about? And when you think about communing with him, what does he think of you? What do you think about? Well, let me give you two words for Jesus. And it's a very dangerous thing to summarize Jesus. We're going to leave a lot off the table, okay? But let me just give you two things to think about, two words you can grab and contemplate this week. Number one is I would say he is the explanation of God. The explanation of God. And I'm getting that from John. John said it in John 1. He said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Pretty powerful. He was with God. There's a distinct personality, and he was God, but one essence. There's the beauty of the Trinity in John 1.1. But notice he calls Jesus the Word. He's the expressive element of the Trinity. And he says in verse 18, no one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained he said, do you want to know what God looks like? Look at Jesus. Do you want to know what God thinks of the poor? Look at how Jesus would move towards them to meet needs. Do you want to see what Jesus thinks of religious hypocrisy? Watch him get furious at the leadership who were closing the gates of heaven to others. You want to see how he treats someone who has completely played themselves out socially, sexually broken. Watch his tenderness with the wayward. Watch his gentleness with children. You want to see what God's like? Jesus has explained him. You want to know God? Look at God the Son. Right? And not only is he the explanation, he is the agent. That's your other word. He is the agent. The agency through which all of God's blessings come to you and me is through the Son. Blessed be our God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ is what Ephesians will say. So creation, John will say, all things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that's come into being. I love that clarifier. That the beginning is like, all things that came into being came into being through him. 
That's pretty clear. And then he says, nothing that's come into being has come into being without him. Like you really needed that. You're like, I thought all things that came into being because he wanted them to be in being was enough. But you just want to clarify, there's no thing that's being that is being because he didn't make it being because he made all things being. And you're like, I got it. Nothing's here except that Jesus didn't will it to be so. He's not just a moral teacher, according to the scriptures. He is the maker of all. And he's the agent of redemption, right? That how do we get back to God? John will say it in verse 12, as many as received him, he gave the right to become children of God. How do I become a child of God? Through Jesus, I receive him. He's the path to the Father. He's the agency of our redemption. And culmination, the book of Revelation lets us know time stops when Jesus shows back up. So history begins, its centerpiece and its finale are all enacted through the agency of the Son. Jesus Christ is the explanation of God, and he's the agent of God. Does that make sense? All right. Theology class over. You made it. I'm proud of you. Okay. Now let's talk in our last few minutes about what does it mean to commune with him? How do we relate to this God? Let me tell you a couple stories and we'll be done. Okay. To commune with him, I think the word we need, Paul gave us, may the grace of the Son be with us all. There's a lot of ways you could define the word grace, but for our purposes here, I'll give you two words. It's kindness extended. Kindness extended. What do I mean by kindness? I mean it's his graciousness, his choice to be kind. The word grace assumes you have need and I have a source that I stoop down to care for you. It's kindness, not merit. We don't earn our way to him. He leans to us. John shows us that in chapter three with a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus, who had much of this book memorized, a religious leader who had strived his whole life to hold the law in this book, and yet he still felt his heart cold to the things of God. I don't have enough to feel at peace. How many of you have done everything you thought you were meant to do religiously and you've been a good person? And yet when we sing about the overwhelming love of God, you marvel at that. I don't get it. I know what it is to be a good kid, but my heart's cold. That's Nicodemus. So he watches Jesus and sees there is no one like this man. He's too ashamed to come with him in the bright light of day. So he visits him in the night and they sit up on a rooftop and he doesn't even have an articulated question. He just asks Jesus, you have to be from God because nobody does what you do. And Jesus answers the longing of his heart with two metaphors that would be devastating to the religious person. Jesus says to him, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you won't see the kingdom of God. How do I get peace with God that my heart longs for? You gotta be born again. And in using that metaphor, he takes this religious man and says, all that work won't get you there. He picks the one moment in Nicodemus's life at which he had no control. Nicodemus had been studying, memorizing, and obeying this book since the time he was a baby. But he contributed nothing to his birth. You know that, right? You didn't help your mom either. 
You didn't say, well, mom, give me about 70% of the way born and then I'll wrap this up, right? You did not help her make you born. You were an entirely passive participant in that process and you're here by her kindness alone, not your merit, right? And so Jesus looks at this religious man and says, I'm not gonna give you just three more things to add to the stack and then God marvels at you. That's not how this works. You wanna be right with God, you gotta be born again. All this doesn't matter. You gotta know me and I gotta bring you to life. And Nicodemus came and understand that. He was like, I don't think my mom's gonna be up for that. And so Jesus pivots to the next bit of voice. He says, no. He says, it's like the wind. He said, you must be born of the spirit that the wind has to blow and you don't see the wind, but you feel the effects of it. And as the wind, so are those who are born of the spirit of God. That's another devastating metaphor because you can't control the wind. If God would have said, you wanna be right with me, it's like a garden. You work really hard and one day God will say, that'll do. And you get to be a child of God. He said, it's not like that. How do you get born into God's family? It's like the wind. You don't control it. It has to come to you. It's not merit. It's grace. It's not earning. It's kindness. It's not you working your way up to God. It's the wind of God blowing. It's new birth by the grace of God. And that's a hard message if you're proud because proud people want to earn their way into the kingdom, right? But you don't get to control God's heart. You don't. I tell guys this in dating all the time. They're interested in a girl and they say, Ben, I did everything right. I sent appropriate text messages. I clearly asked her on a date. I took her to a nice restaurant and I dropped her off and told her I had a lovely time. So does she love me now? No. No matter what you do, she is not obligated to love you. No formula makes her obligated to set her affections on you. That is her choice, right? And so she determines who gets to experience that. Now, you go, well, then if I can't control it, why even bother doing all this? Hope! <laughs> because you want to be positioned in the hope that she may bestow her affections upon you, you lucky man, right? That's what I mean. And you say, well, then why am I showing up at church? Why do that? All this religious adherence won't earn for you the smile of God because it's not for sale. But here's the thing. It's kindness and it's extended, not withheld. But you have to admit I'm in need of kindness because I can't get myself there. Watched a movie recently on the plane called The Isle of Dogs by Wes Anderson. Love that movie, and I love Wes Anderson, which is controversial because I love his movies, but inevitably there's always like some random nude scene, which is horrible. And so as a pastor, I can never recommend a Wes Anderson movie because just as a note, pastors can't recommend movies with random nudity. Just write that down. If you're like thinking about going into ministry, uh, don't do it. Um, <laughs> I mean, maybe going to ministry, just don't recommend nudity. But what I'm saying is Isle of Dogs is, uh, it's like these little like a uh, claymation or something. It's not, it's, uh, it's uh, little puppets or something. So, uh, and, and they all have their clothes on. It's a great movie. But if you've never seen it, 
the basic idea is there's an island filled with trash. And on Trash Island, there's all these dogs that have been abandoned and are diseased and are condemned there to die. But a little boy finds out his dog has been banished there and he's not okay with that. So he hijacks a plane. He flies his little plane over to that island and crashes it in the middle of the trash. I mean, it has a piece of metal sticking out of his head, but nothing's going to stop him. I am going to get my dog. And as these other dogs see what he's doing, they get behind it because most of them knew what it was to have a master. And they knew having a master wasn't tyranny, it was freedom. And they loved the idea of this little boy, except for one dog named Chief. The idea of having a master who bestows favor on me, no. I'm the captain of my own ship. And he doesn't like that. But he's intrigued by the personality of this boy. This kid would risk his life to come to an island of trash to get his dog. So he follows him. And as he follows him, he's fascinated by the resilience and determination of this child. Then they get to a pivotal moment. They got to navigate this different leg of the journey. And so the child turns to this dog and tells him, you have to heal. And they realize in this moment, now we're at a crossroads. You have to kneel to me, heal, and let me control what's coming. And this dog hates the idea of submission. But he knows if I don't submit to him, he's got to go on without me. And so he decides I hate the idea of being without him even more. So he submits. And he finds in that moment, what the child does with that power is washes the dog clean and it had never been washed and feeds him food that he had never tasted and invites him on a mission of rescue that gives him a family and a sense of purpose and by the end, more joy than he conceived as possible. Submission was freedom. And yet at that pivotal moment, they play this song from the 60s, this weird little hippie song that starts with, I have lost all of my pride, because that's the secret. But then in that moment of decision, the chorus keeps singing over and over again, I won't hurt you, I won't hurt you. I won't hurt you, I won't hurt you. And for many of us, the reason we don't want to submit to a God is because someone else with power hurt us. And we said, I will never put myself in that position again. And if that's you, I would say, look at the son. See what he is like. Watch him come to a broken world to save sinners. Watch him journey among the trash for the abandoned ones. Watch him put his hands on the diseased to make them whole. Watch him wash us clean of our shame. Watch that when you submit to him, he doesn't crush you. He liberates you. You fix your eyes on Jesus because when he relates to you, John says he was full of grace and truth. And of his fullness, we received grace upon grace. And he repeats it for emphasis. It's like waves crashing on a seashore. His grace keeps coming to you. It is kindness, not merit. So you kneel, but in doing so, you find freedom. Because the good news is, it's kindness extended, not withheld. 
And John does something beautiful. Jesus leaves Nicodemus. And the next intersection he has, the text tells us he must go through Samaria. Samaria was a region that when the nation of Israel was conquered by Babylon, they swept them off into captivity, but some remained intermingled with some pagan communities and created a kind of a mixed up version of the faith. And so as Israelites moved back, there was a lot of tension between the true believer and the false. And that tension had some ethnic elements to it. Uh, It had some allegiance and religious elements to it, but it had some deep hatred to it. And so the Jewish people would often navigate around this region of Samaria. And the text says Jesus had to go through it. Didn't have to. He was choosing to. And he leaves this religious elite man, Nicodemus, and goes to about the most opposite person you could think of. Some of you are religious and have done everything right in your life. Others of you, if you ever had a youth pastor, he would not be proud of you. And that's who Jesus goes to next. A woman at the well in the middle of the day when no one else is there so she can journey alone. And Jesus does something crazy. He walks straight up to her and says, can I get a drink of water? And what's crazy about that is Jews didn't go to Samaria, much less talk to a Samaritan. And particularly in that culture, men were more elevated than women. So a Jewish man talking to a Samaritan woman is so crazy, she never answers his question. The implications of him even speaking are too loud. We never know if she gives him a drink of water. Text doesn't tell us. You don't know if he circled around later and was like, hey, seriously, man, like I'm really thirsty. Like, can I please, can you hook me up? You don't know. He says, can I have a drink? And the implications of that initiation are so loud, she responds to those. What are you doing talking to me? And he says, if you knew who was talking to you, you would ask me and I'd give you living water that would come welling up out of you into eternal life. Here's the cool thing. He's going to give it to her anyway. And she never thought to ask because it's not kindness withheld. It's extended. He's coming to Samaria for you. And so he tells her, go get your husband. She said, I don't have a husband. He's like, yeah, I know you've had five. And now you're living with a guy you're not married to. And in saying that, he's letting her know you've had a devastated life sexually. I don't know if she knew what love was, but she certainly knew what it was to be used. And so Jesus pries open her deepest shame. If we're going to have a real relationship, let's come real. Let's not play games. So he said, I want to offer you life. Bring what you got. And it's a lot of brokenness. That conversation's a little too real. So she does what a lot of people do in church. Rather than talk about her broken heart, she pivots to esoteric theology. Well, it's interesting because, um, you know, your people believe that God will return on that mountain in the eschaton. My people believe it's on this mountain. So what do you think from a theological perspective? What's your mountain eschatology? And Jesus is like, man. And here's the crazy thing. The two mountains over the valley where they're sitting, one of them, when the law was given, all the blessings, if you obey it, were spoken from one. The other, all the curses, if you disobey the law, were preached from the cursing one. And Jesus doesn't look at her and go, you know where we are right now? That's the curse mountain for sinners like you. He doesn't do that. He says, 
there's a day coming where the mountain's not really going to matter. He said, but you're wrong about some key things because salvation is coming from the Jews. And by that, he meant himself. And she says, well, I know when the Messiah, the anointed one, the hero of the story comes, he's explaining all this. And then Jesus does something crazy that he doesn't do again until the week of his death. He, he gives a direct answer to a question, which is crazy. I don't know if you ever noticed that about Jesus' ministry. People are like, why are you here? And he's like, there was a man who had a horse. And they're like, wait, what? And he's always kind of like working these angles, keeping people off balance. But here he's with this broken girl who has nothing to offer him. And she says, I know one day a Messiah will come to help us understand all this. And Jesus looks her dead in the eye and says, you're talking to him. I'm he. That's why I'm here. That's why I had to come through Samaria. It's because I'm coming for you. And I know who you are. And I know what you've done. And I still showed up because this is not merit, it's kindness. And it's not withheld. He is not a withholding God. It's extending like grace upon grace on a seashore. So I don't know what you've done. I don't know what you've seen. I don't know what you've touched, but I know him. And I know his grace is sufficient for you and for me. And I know what he accomplished on that cross was to bury your sin and your shame and mine too so that when he comes to us, it's not with condemnation, but communion. It's not with shame, but salvation. He says, I'm coming for you. And when I get a hold of you, it's gonna become a well inside of you. And you're gonna be like this woman running back home and saying, he told me everything I ever did. And with no shame in her voice, it's not like he knows everything. She's like, he knew it all and he still came for me. You got to meet a God like that. But the very voice of God has come to bring communion back home. Francis S. Thompson, back in the 1800s in England, great uh, prospects to be a doctor. His dad sent him to school, but turned out pretty quick in the process he hated biology, was more interested in poetry, wanted to write poems, and uh, that doesn't make you a lot of money, but he just ditched school and went to London to see how he could do, and he struggled to make ends meet, and as he began to live there, he got hooked on opium, became a drug addict. Once great prospects now, ends up living on the streets, Charing Cross, ends up sleeping with the homeless under the bridge and alongside the River Thames. And every now and again, he would grab like a loose piece of paper out of the trash and write like a poem and send him to the newspaper. And they're like, one as great as Milton is in our midst and nobody knows where he is. And they didn't know because he had wrecked his life. Wrecked his parents' homes, wrecked his chances, wrecked his body, wrecked his friendships. I was so overwhelmed with the shame of that as he laid in the gutter in Charing Cross that he decided to take his own life. But a prostitute stopped him, saved his life. And in that lowest of possible moments, someone told him that Jesus loves you right here. Not when you get out of the gutter, not when you figure it out, not when you get your life right, but right now, addicted, broken, ashamed, attempted, ending it all, he's coming for you. And when the clarity of that landed in his mind, he wrote his greatest poem about the hound of heaven. 
It's kind of the 1800s version of the song we sang, Reckless Love. He said that I fled him down the days and nights. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways. He said, I ran so far, but that hound of heaven kept coming after me. God pursues me. There was no mountain he wouldn't climb, no chain he wouldn't break, no obstacle he wouldn't smash. He would move towards me. Like Jacob in the Old Testament who ruined his whole life and was alone sleeping on a rock in the wilderness and heaven opened and a ladder descended. God even wants you, Jacob. He said, that's what God did to me. So then he wrote these words in no strange land about the presence of God imminent among us, even the wayward. He says, but when so sad thou canst not sadder, cry, and upon thy so sore loss shall shine the traffic of Jacob's ladder pitched betwixt heaven and charing cross. Yea, in the night, my soul, my daughter, cry, cling heaven by the hems, and lo, Christ is walking on the water, not of Gennesaret, but Tim's. He's coming for you. That's what he's like. That God so loved the world, he sent his only son. Whoever believes in him wouldn't perish, but have life. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. That's what's on the table today. The very agent of God wants to extend kindness to all those who receive him. And when you do, it changes everything. He changes everything. If you were encouraged by today's talk, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you stream your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and live gatherings, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com or download the Passion Movement app. And again, Thanks for listening to the Passion City Church DC podcast.